As a little disclaimer here, the following informal essay I'm about to read from, well, the views may well change over time, as with anything, everything I've written down at some point, I read back later down the line and think, Jesus Christ. So, I'm just personally acknowledging at this point of time of the recording that that's a thing. It is just an inevitable process of self-disappointment that that I hope we can all benefit from in one way or another. Why every Star Wars film is great from a certain point of view. Introduction. This following musing is an act of personal compulsion with some sincere outward intention of optimism should this content be consumed. Nevertheless, it is a ritual of typing this out while the fan base and critical reception of Star Wars is now divided from numerous angles that enables me to satisfy and regulate a lot of my own feelings about something that's been so influential to me, amongst many other things, of course. So, I am not a film critic, neither do I stand a chance of becoming one. In fact, there are critics whose opinions I have great respect for, and there are two recent articles specifically relevant to Star Wars that I'd like to include links for as a way of acknowledging some qualified, professionally executed observations of modern Star Wars that's generally more positive and optimistic tone I feel aligned with. Be that as it may, of the many things Star Wars has taught me, it's that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. This may seem fairly obvious to most of us, and perhaps in some context, suspect to backtracking. I will come back to that, probably. But I have long made it my personal destiny to one day attempt to articulate the general mishmash of significant feelings I have around Star Wars in most of its pre-existing forms. I'm reaching out with my feelings... Obi-Wan is my spirit animal. So, I will leave links for two points of view I personally endorse, and I will proceed in a somewhat structured ramble that follows the nine-part Skywalker saga chronologically. I believe doing it this way warrants consideration now the lid on said saga is fully closed, and it is also, I believe, interesting to take on a chronology of storytelling that's overall production is so unique in its own timeline. These are, of course, individual thoughts. Other opinions are always available. But I will, in some explanations, have to acknowledge what I perceive to be an excess of cynicism that seems to polarise the Star Wars fandom as much as that sort of thing seems to polarise just about every subject at the moment, so I may attempt to call out what I believe are unfair deductions. But, for the record, I appreciate that it doesn't really matter. It'd just be nice to participate in a faction of the fandom that is still, generally, for people who are still general fans. This franchise probably has the most divided fan base at the moment, 
There's a number of reasons which I'll probably get into, but essentially what I want to do now that this nine-part Skywalker saga is a wrap is attempt to evaluate the whole story with fresh eyes. Assuming we were now introduced to the whole episodic tale in chronological order, without any of the baggage or preconceptions regarding one's views of what a good Star Wars film should or shouldn't be. We may all sit and argue over how different writers' and directors' visions play out against, uh, for or against each other's over the production of all nine films, or to assume that a story of this overall length is somewhat devalued on the grounds that, unlike, say, Tolkien's Middle-earth, it is not the contained vision of one pure visionary. Let's pretend, for the purpose of this, that that doesn't matter. Because, actually, it doesn't. Star Wars is whatever Star Wars is. It's always been a lot of different things, while, in essence, also being very simple. There does, of course, have to be some sense of continuity to distinguish a Star Wars film from, say, an armchair, or a poem, or a poem about armchairs. In the same vein, there must be some embedded qualities that could make an armchair or a poem about armchairs feel more like Star Wars. There is a collective sense of duty to define Star Wars, which I don't think has to be as divisive as it's recently become. But I don't accept the implication that it's all pure that it all puritanically falls on one man's sacred vision. Let's be clear. George Lucas did a remarkable thing by getting such an ambitious franchise off the ground, and has been surmised before by other people. His respect is well earned. And in terms of uh, his motives, perhaps cynically, the original project has systematically, or had systematically, set out a method of storytelling that could sell a shitload of toys. Obviously, it succeeded at that, and I have fond memories of my X-Wing fighter. I was not an avid collector, nor was there the time or money to be one, and I have no intention of becoming an avid collector. Obviously, I'd like a custom lightsaber and a Wookiee costume to get me through the colder periods, but I made do with what I had plus a generous portion of imagination, inspired in no small part by the people who put Star Wars together. But, in my humble opinion, the joy I did get out of that bit of plastic, the films, a few video games here and there, it all makes the whole process more than worth a relatively small amount of consumerism for what I got out of it. Now, as an aspiring artist myself, I owe so much of my life's passion and determination to experiencing all those facets of creative innovation that Star Wars excelled in. And I believe it still does. I like to think Lucas set a unique platform for inventive and playful creativity, whether it's for the children to play with and reinvent themselves, or compelling all those involved in these productions to pull out their own unique A-game. And it's that collective A-game of individuals' work that strikes me most when Star Wars is at its best. So much inventiveness, innovation... And problem-solving goes into everything we see and hear in those films. 
And these crafts complement each other in ways they often don't with many large-scale productions. I am aware of an escalating lisp here, by the way, but there's not much I can do about it with the contraption in my mouth right now. Uh, Okay. The fandom has been a wonderful and unique thing that reflects that. Not my uh, brace, uh, but what I was saying before. Especially now that many once humble fans are behind the wheel making Star Wars. There remains a lot of goodwill in this community, despite what impression some may have gotten lately. It's a community that celebrates everyone up and down the production ladder. Popular fan trivia details the many individual achievements and anecdotes behind each instalment. Even the mundane or serendipitous, e.g. that film extra knocking his head, these facets get embraced by the community and some, sometimes playfully woven into the collective mythology. I find these things humbling, and it always made the fan base feel more accessible. Every new contribution can be sacred, even if it might contradict something else. So, sure, there's going to be disputes, but I'm confident enough that in time, things always settle on a mostly consensual blueprint. Unlike more orthodox followings, there's greatness in the collective balance that seeks to regulate legacy with innovation. It's a politics game that's not always simple, but I ought to but it ought to be united on its own inclusivity of views. Of course, if you find you can't stand anything with Star Wars in the name by now, you may want to try fishing or something. At their best, these successes are not pure vision. It's a collective of individuals who, with the right framework and modest direction, can reimagine simple, timeless stories of good versus evil and heroes' journeys in immersive ways that deeper ingrains certain values, virtues and willingness to just wonder. Now, listen... To reiterate, I am far from a film critic or theorist, and my spelling and grammar is a bad hangover from years of mixing THC with dyslexia. I am, however it seems, a voice of the Star Wars fanbase that's in an auditory minority at the moment, at least one that's audible against the reductive yelling competitions which now account for all discourse online even over bigger issues than Star Wars, if we can imagine such a thing. So, like any self-respecting, force-sensitive individual, I have a certain point of view. I hope if I can treat this blog with enough constructive objectivity, albeit I confess with some positive bias, which I am willing to contest is in short supply for most matters, I hope I might set myself a reasonable standard for debating other issues. However douchey this will sound, a classic, timeless story that does explicitly explore and negotiate a journey between long-standing binary viewpoints might in fact offer some meaningful allegory for the tribalistic culture that manifests itself in this as any manner of community. I could have, and perhaps should have, made this musing more just about the cultural merits of positive thinking, 
but what started as a casual afternoon jotting down a couple of paragraphs about a fantasy space opera escalated a bit. So let's talk Skywalker Saga. I may have given away that I am rather a fan of Star Wars, but I am not incapable of observing flaws in each instalment, and this is where I find the grey area between recognising fault or misfire and attempting to reject it in its entirety. Because the common criticism—excuse me—the current—the common criticisms have always have already. Let's try that again. Because the common criticisms have already been done to such nauseam online. Not to mention complaining in general. And because, frankly, I think there ought to be far more to unite this fan base than divide it. I'm interested in what stands up as a whole and how this story in its updated form is going to play out in reflection for old and newcomers alike. I can't promise I won't acknowledge the sentimental context a little bit, but I'll endeavour not to derail from this uh, from how this nine-part story progresses. Episode 1. The Phantom Menace. I think I had a slight practical advantage here in that I'd not seen the prequels for a while until recently, and made sure I watched them back in their most optimum audio-visual quality I could, which made the experience feel that much newer, a long cry from originally seeing it on a questionably pirated VHS format many years ago. The whole trade embargo stuff is a little much to take on right off the bat, and though Jar Jar is a character clearly directed at much younger kids, it does seem to play at odds with a plot that requires a much older crowd to wrap their head around. However, there is enough for most age groups to comprehend and install curiosity for what awaits ahead. For one, we see explicitly, or rather here, how integral John Williams' music is to the storytelling, as much as the unique sounds and aesthetic. The visual aesthetic we see in this uh, in these first chapters do depict a more glossy, varnished world that uh, than the one that awaits us. This effect is elevated by the CGI limitations at the time of the prequel's production. But we still see a vibrant world of prosperity, liberty, diversity, and all those luscious things we often see in societies before the dark times, before the Empire. Let's also remember we're witnessing a fantasy tale, not a sci-fi, which brings us to the Force. The Force, as far as is introduced in this film... Doesn't need much explanation, midi-chlorians aside, the take-home is there is this unifying energy presence type thing, and there are ways to tune into this life's energy field to unlock powers. I don't need to explain, there's a whole other topic where I could muse on how to interpret the Force, should one wish to interpret it, but the general gist of it aligns with a lot of... uh, spiritual and philosophical outlets we've already probably somewhat familiar with. We are embarking on an old story, a classical tale reused and repurposed through history with reused and repurposed ideas of good versus evil, the balance of yin and yang, etc. But I state this now because in an abstract sense some 
Someone coming to this afresh will already foresee a vague arc of sorts playing out on the horizon. The reward, if we are to desire one, is the journey. Beginning this journey, we have the discovery of a chosen one. Someone who appears from a figurative nowhere and, as we learn, came into existence from a literal nowhere. Some higher force outside of mortal perception that has set some wheels in motion. And we are, as Anakin is, about to slowly discover the full extent of what he's capable of. As he is indoctrinated into this bigger world far from his humble roots. Episode 2 Attack of the Clones So, we're back. Anakin is all grown up and smashing the Force abilities, though he's still under Obi-Wan's wing. And we've got a rebellious teen vibe brewing with the folks of the Jedi Council. Here's where we should first raise the matter of who's really acting out of line so far. Most of Anakin's grievances so far have been fairly reasonable, really. He was freed from being a slave, though it seems in the divine wisdom and evident riches of the Jedi Order they have not found the time or inclination to uh, free his mother, or, it seems, allowed him to do the job for them. Eventually, after many years having been separated from her, he does have to defy obedience in order to rescue her. On the reliable force intuition, she's in trouble. Then, of course, what with her death, he then, quite understandably, given the situation and the more than questionable upbringing he's had since leaving Tantooine, lashes out and slaughters that whole tribe. Sure, we know, objectively, as well a Jedi may teach us, that his actions were not a constructive way of dealing with the matter, and has we watch this young, talented man grow more frustrated, bitter, and of course horny. There's no grey area that he's lacking enough proper guidance here. It's not a new realisation to go, hang on, the Jedi Council were actually a bit shitty. And we'll all see this echo in several later instalments, but this is fairly on the nose throughout. We know the Jedi Council, uh, the Jedi Code even, offers a great wisdom and virtue, but if there's one telling point flagging itself up in the early stages of this story, it's that even the standard heroes are not immune to hubris, to which Anakin is becoming the unfortunate victim. One more thing I have to reiterate before the next one. Remember... Anakin has no natural blood father. Someone or something of great power saw to his creation. I can't emphasise enough how significant I believe this is in how the whole saga ties together, but I will elaborate later. Episode 3. Revenge of the Sith. So... You might have gathered I'm not going to dive much into the specifics of every bit of plot development, more so the general emotional beats that I can take from it all. There's a number of different topics relating to all the finer details I'd happily talk over sometime. That's an open invitation. 
In this one, we see the final stages of grooming, and any suspicion that there were so far of Palpatine are confirmed as his true role as Emperor unravels while he further grooms Anakin into his tool for evil by exploiting his fears. Which makes me wonder about Palpatine's own journey to greed and corruption, and it's not hard to see how someone with such political manipulation may have insidious intentions, but we get one potential reference to his past that is significant. He tells Anakin the story of Darth Plagueis whose powers were so great he could create life, and that his apprentice then killed him after pinching his ideas. I can only find 95% confirmation in the canon. Palpatine was his apprentice, and it's heavily implied nonetheless. So, to add to that, with what I underlined before, there is now official canon that heavily implies Palpatine was at very least involved in the creation of Anakin Skywalker. Episode 4, A New Hope. The aftermath of the uprising. The old, lived-in aesthetic is more evident now. Time has passed. An old order has fallen. Old, decrepit relics of time that were. This is a vibe now delivered twofold, considering the deliberate art design depicting a lived-in, believable fantasy landscape, but without that somewhat unrealistic, glossy, high-fidelity aesthetic from the prequels that used different digital film-making methods. Methods that were less able to depict real-life things at the time, At where we've arrived now, that less realistic glossy sheen that most things had in the first three chapters has perhaps conveniently in the chronology been rendered in a more romanticised, dreamlike form, perhaps. One of better, one of a better, more vibrant time in the galaxy that the society is to think back on with some self-pity or longing. This is the legacy of Skywalker's transformation into Darth Vader. We're thrown into a battle and a war. Two droids who by now would be familiar, in the thick of it. Then, after an escape, they serve as a device to reintroduce us to Skywalker's son, Luke Skywalker. And from the film's title, we quickly see the makings of a hero's journey fall into place. But we know by now that the last time that that seemed the case, it all derailed quite violently. It's already been told that the destiny of a chosen one may be misleading, and so with a prospect of some bloodline legacy hanging over in a menacing sort of way, we follow another individual from humble beginnings, longing for greater, more meaningful things in his life, and keen to join the rebellion against the regime of the Empire. We're reintroduced to Obi-Wan, now a humble hermit. It would be fair to say he would be very humble by this point in the tale. He knows his own failings with Anakin, and seemed to be stuck in the middle of a conflict between his apprentice and the Jedi Order. 
He tells Luke that Vader betrayed and murdered his father. Let's come back to that one later. So, our old friend Kenobi appears to eventually sacrifice his life to enable Luke and his friends to escape and transition into the Jedi ghost realm, seemingly embracing his death while replicating that shocked onlooking apprentice from when he was in Luke's shoes witnessing Qui-Gon's demise. Many of us will have already heard George Lucas's remarks about the significance of maintaining this rhythm of emotional beats and transitions, a legacy of pitfalls and successes through the ages, passed on perhaps by blood's mystic destiny. Then there are deliberate motifs that already carry us through this saga, from significant plot points down to playful repetitions of remarks like, I have a bad feeling about this. This certainly evokes a sense of these individuals on a journey to some realisation that they are all part of something bigger. This new group of unlikely people and droids have their own ups and downs, then eventually blow up this big-ass planet-destroying spaceship. And so, despite another unfortunate wave of bloodshed, they bond victoriously at the end, only footnote being that Vader's whereabouts are not certain. Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. What a film. I could just end that one there. Seems all the key points here are so embedded in popular culture anyway that it would be cliché. Nevertheless... We see Luke's powers growing as he force pulls the lightsaber in order to escape the ice cave. But as a person, he's far from invincible, getting stranded in the storm for Han to come and rescue. It's interesting to note here, Han humorously remarks that he saved Luke's life twice, and we know of his unsavoury background that he's already earned a lot of redemption in saving the day in New Hope. He is already depicted as a hero in many respects, but critically speaking, he is still depicted as a flawed, reckless hero, which makes him more interesting and believable. But if we wanted to factor in the solo movie just for one second, he started out as a nobody. His parents were nobodies, and yet he's become instrumental in saving the galaxy and saving a Skywalker three times so far, technically. Remember what I said before about the rhythm and repetition of occurrences and revelations that unfold? Curiously, though we know at this point the Skywalker legacy does indeed carry great power in the Force, there is no doubt implied that the legacy towards being a remarkable person is not tied to a black-and-white template. We're reintroduced to Yoda, with a more playful persona, perhaps in part because his calm, swamp-like planet retirement retreat has rubbed off well on him, and probably humbled, as was Obi-Wan, in the aftermath of Jedi's failings and downfall. But also, of course, he withholds his true identity for a while to test Luke's patience, which is interesting. I it's kind of nice that this lesson in patience involves Yoda presenting himself as an apparent nobody, while Luke awaits a great warrior. Yoda passes on a lot of virtue in this instalment. It is very much a spiritual awakening for Luke, 
and a joy to watch and contemplate his lessons. And it all stands up well as a pleasant amalgamation of spiritual wisdom. But we do see Luke fall into conflict at the decision to rescue his friends, going against the advice of Yoda and Obi-Wan's ghost. They are perhaps less of a formidable unit to defy at this stage, being a shadow of their former glory. But, as with Anakin before, this aspirational Skywalker decides to go against the direction of his elders to try and save those he cares about. Begs the question, should he have? Surely the Jedi Council should have given him more of a chance to help out Anakin's mother before things got bad, got that bad, or or given him and Padme the liberty of living out their relationship. As clearly it was more important to Anakin than following the ancient Jedi dogma. But the greater good, he was the chosen one. If he'd stuck to the grand plan, maybe he could have saved the galaxy. And so maybe if Luke does, he can save the galaxy. I don't know about you, I don't think the answers matter if there are any. What's important to me is that the questions are there. That an ancient code of wisdom can or should be questioned, just as much as the inclinations of an individual. As it turns out, it seems Luke's rescue plan derails quite dramatically, at least up until a point. He has a good pop at Vader, and his friends have managed to rescue themselves, except for uh, Solo, who we at least know is still alive. But then we witness Luke's horrified discovery of who his father really is. All this after another unfortunate hand-loss motif. But Vader's plans are not without a hitch, as Luke opts out of his proposal and falls to uncertain times. His hand and the the lightsaber it grasps, long gone. Episode 6, Return of the Jedi. Luke now emerges an apparent master, rescues Han and the rest of the gang. The Emperor once again takes centre stage as he attempts to groom Luke as he did his father. There's a lot else that happens in this movie, but but these are matters of four other discussions, so let me cut to the chase. Love prevails over greed. Vader is turned after Luke's selflessness and willingness to believe there is still good in him. It's interesting considering Anakin's traumatic background, separated from his mother, his failure to save her life, and the cruel irony his lover and mother of his children dies as a consequence of his own actions. The love and affection in his formative years were fraught with grief and devastation, not to mention the physical drama, trauma even, physical trauma. Another consequence of this of his actions, the dark side offered him a sense of agency uh, and vengeance to the status quo that failed him. He submitted to greed and aggression. Then his son, Luke, his only connection to the love and affection of his past, offers him forgiveness. With this, we also have to forgive the flaws in the Jedi teachings that failed Anakin and discouraged Luke from wanting to help his friends and his father. Both Vader and Luke wanted each other on their own side, but of two different ends, and in some respects has placed that at potential odds with their own masters and voices of authority or wisdom they're operating under. 
ultimately, it is the Jedi virtue of not giving in to hate that prevails. But crucially, it only does at the humility and humanity of Luke's mistakes along the way, as well as the Jedi's before him. These essential human flaws and pitfalls of both Vader and Luke are what eventually bring them together. Luke gets to defeat the monster and free his father at the same time. The war is won. Luke is the last living Jedi. The dark side has fallen. It is all now down to Luke and his sister to determine a new legacy of the Force for the galaxy. The Jedi failed Anakin. The Sith failed themselves. Everyone has a big old party with Ewoks. And Luke has a responsibility on his shoulders to pass on what he has learnt. Episode 9. The Force Awakens. Well, a great deal of time has once again passed. Luke is missing and another storm is brewing. Fulfilling the same motif as before, we're introduced to another unknown world via a droid caught up in the middle of a new conflict. We're introduced to Kylo Ren, who turns out to be Leia and Solo's son. And we're introduced to a... Excuse me. We're introduced to a scavenger called Ray. Once again, someone living a humble existence in the shadow of a bygone era. We meet a disillusioned stormtrooper who quickly escapes by befriending a top mark fighter pilot for the resistance, already caught in the thick of it, with a search underway to locate Luke Skywalker. It has been the it has been observed, but I feel obligated to note there is a lot of deliberately repeated plot motifs from episode 4 in episode 7. In the context of its critical reception since it was released, I had, and still have, zero issues with this. Not only because reoccurring themes have always had a large significance for Star Wars anyway, and I don't see a reason to devalue an experience of harmless, well-crafted nostalgia other than compulsive cynicism. But fundamentally, I believe that this chapter, in, o- in the overall story, while presenting a familiar cycle of events, does a few crucial things differently. The characters. The lines are more blurred between them. Their destinies are more nuanced and uncertain. Sure, some things are the same. The Force has once again become a thing of legend and myth. But how so? What the hell happened to Luke? It's fair to say some people's inquisitiveness might have dwindled after episode 6, when victory was won and they all had a happy big Ewok dance. But then I remember an episode of Breaking Bad where all those loose ends seemed happily tied up. But then a guy uses his toilet and suddenly shit goes south. The only prevailing question I recall keeping after first watching Return of the Jedi apart from shamelessly wanting to check in on dearly loved characters, was what kind of Jedi or force-wielding legacy is Luke and Leia going to construct? Are they going to sow the seeds for the kind of imperialistic orthodox religion like it used to be? Or give it a more subtler touch, similar to Protestantism or humanism? Gosh, I'm not going to be saying that again. Or might or might there be complications, given they are, after all, at the time, relatively young, young individuals. 
they were even. Carrying a fair bit of trauma between them, like that junction I hit in Breaking Bad, part of me wanted to close the story there with peace of mind, but the impulse to push on won out. So all I'll add to that end is if people want to shut the lid after episode six, well, we are all entirely free to do so. The choice is yours, so there's no need for anyone to roll their eyes at the prospect of sticking around for more. Because I, at least, have to see what happens. Ray and Kylo. We already see Ray has suspiciously strong force powers. To hers and Kylo's shock and surprise. And we've already seen the markings of an interesting dyad between them by the end. Though Kylo leaves a mark of devastation in this chapter, after evident inner conflict, a chance moment pulls him further towards to the dark as he kills his own father, to the shock of the onlookers, and, unless you have a heart of concrete, ourselves. I don't know about you, but when I first saw that, already enamoured by the profound childlike joy of revisiting this familiar universe, it triggered something primal in me. What I'm going to call the, oh fuck that guy, mechanism. This, I would hope, would be a familiar feeling for anyone having reached this point chronologically. And along with the various unanswered questions hanging in the air, and the concluding discovery of the infamous hermit Luke, this fanfare of persuasive sentimentality, throwbacks and new questions hanging heavily in the air ought to get most people who've come this far set hooked set hook line and sinker for what awaits us next a footnote i can't leave this without acknowledging how memorable an experience it was for me personally evidently i have a fair few relating to star wars um to want to write this but the setting and build-up in which I saw this film, opening day at the Leicester Square IMAX, the morning after the London premiere was hosted there. This was a profoundly transcendent experience. Naturally, not everyone enters into this as a huge fan, or even the right sort of fan. But the square that day was heavily... It was heaving with fans of all ages, costumes and performances. It was a full fan convention, and never have I ever been in a cinema with such a level of unapologetically emotional investment in the film. This was transcendent, similar only to one or two psychedelic experiences where I, appropriately enough, awakened something within. My child self, as real a feeling as if for a few hours my whole adolescence and adult life to date had never happened. We were revisiting a beloved world that, for years, had assumed we never would. So it became a fantasy. Suddenly, there we were, young and old alike, participating in this realised fantasy. The first, the first strike of John Williams' chords as the appearance of the logo, and the appearance of the logo even, was the kind of stuff I believe people spend a fortune under shamanic supervision in South American retreats. But if I ever get the chance to realise that verdict of that suspicion myself, then I'll gladly update. (coughs) Episode 8, The Last Jedi. 
We dive right into a brutal battle, picking up straight where we left off in the previous chapter. And with the resistance in dire need of support, it's down to Ray and Chewie to plead with Luke for his help. Given that he'd fled in the first place, we may well have already expected Luke to harbour some reservations about getting involved. But the way he cavalierly tosses the sabre behind him establishes a key theme of abandonment of bygone glory. Disillusion of legacy, or put simply, the humbling humility of just giving up. Something that we've seen already with Kenobi and Yoda in Revenge of the Sith, and with Solo in Force Awakens. In all cases, we see that shit went south, causing them to fall back, retreating discreetly in fear of creating more problems. In Luke's case, he's not merely giving up on himself, but as far as he's concerned, is doing the righteous thing of permanently closing the legacy of the Jedi with him. We've seen some of the past failings of The Last Jedi Order, ones which Luke himself references with disdain in this chapter. And Luke, though bitter, bestows wisdom by implying that true balance in the Force transcends the bygone orthodox doctrines. The Sith and the Jedi Code in their stubborn polarity seem always, to, seem always set to backfire on themselves. Polarised viewpoints are a very familiar issue these days. Rey, in her optimism to bring Luke around to help, is caught between two challenging viewpoints of Rey of Ren and Luke, even. But the more she learns and interrogates Luke, the more we see that certain point of view play out that swings both ways. How we present the truth says a lot about our own virtues and fears. After the, after the demise of Snoke, both Ren and Luke set out to take their own final steps in destroying the expectations that once weighed over them. At this tipping point, Luke gets a visit from Yoda, someone already humbled by devastation of the Jedi Order's failings which he was in the heart of. And as a general veteran who has 900 years of success and humility behind him, Yoda out-Yodas himself with the virtuous words he gives Luke. Whether it's the Jedi text, other such relics, or the code therein, there will always be different points of view. Though wisdom they held, the essential lessons of failure must be learned on an individual level. The recognition of one's failures and responsibilities therein, that's where the magic really happens. Luke noted the hubris of the Jedi Code, but he'd lost sight of the good Jedi virtues, perhaps because he couldn't forgive himself, and therefore couldn't forgive the Jedi. Yoda drops the mic when he explains our failures are as essential to ourselves as they are in the virtuous legacy we pass on, and ultimately... We are but what they grow beyond. Now, just an aside, perhaps in the virtue of failure and forgiveness I just mentioned, I do not fall into either common camp regarding the critical reception of this film. But that Yoda quote is fucking brilliant. 
Like most Star Wars films, the stuff that works, works. How one deals with the flaws or failings if one identifies such things is down to you. Though the abandonment theme is very prominent in this instalment, that wasn't something as a diehard uh, Star Wars fan that bothered me. Given that I believe it still maintains adequate affection for the tradition at the same time. Like every Star Wars film, I like the bits I liked. That's all that matters to me, but whether you hated it because of an abandonment of Star Wars tradition or loved it because of an abandonment of Star Wars tradition, I don't follow your point of view. It feels to me like we watched a different film. So, anyway, episode 8 closes with a resistance very thin on the ground. Everyone's been split up, but found their way back together, and Luke reprises his heroic glory in spectacle, albeit to the great pity of it costing him his life. For a middle part of a trilogy, people get split up, and various things go heavily south, but those left are usually stronger and united in their determination. Episode 9. The Rise of Skywalker. Again, there is another elephant in the room question hanging over this one relating to the critical reception when it came out. Please bear with me. I will address that, hopefully. So, the most significant development right out of the gate, Palpatine has returned. He has therefore manipulated life itself as he alluded to back in episode 3, when he heavily implies his involvement in the undoing of Darth Plagueis, a Sith so powerful he could create life. And, as has already been covered closely, precedes Palpatine's involvement in the creation of Anakin and the same force powers passed down the Skywalker bloodline. This force, mani- this force manufacturing of new life, and indeed cheating of death, is very much a Scythian, yeah, I said Scythian, inclination, but a power I'm sure we've all desired here and there. One brief note, it's not mentioned in the film, but it is canon, it is canon even from the official novelisation, and a point that I will return to. Palpatine was said to have projected his life force into another vessel, body. So the Palpatine we see in number nine is not the same physically, hence the whole laboratory of specimens and clones in his hangout. Interestingly, we've already seen types of force projection, if not of slight physical transcendence, in episode eight. And indeed we see... Uh, more of it here in fight scenes that uh, momentarily transcend into material interactions across distant reaches of space, e.g. Ren's glove covered in rain water from Luke's island retreat in episode 8, and after a back and forth with Ray, and then more Ren-Ray exchanges in 9, including one grabbing a necklace off another, and a lightsaber battle I particularly liked, knocking down some of Ren's prized relics like Vader's helmet and all that. Overall, 
This development of the Force projection has been a key device in the storytelling of these last two chapters. And it makes me wonder what enables Ren Ray distance force interactions to be that much more advanced than, say, Luke's projection in episode 8, where he served as a distraction and a symbol of hope, but was not able to carry matter across, such as Han's trinket given to Leia, which eventually dissolves along with Luke's projection. Perhaps this was purely a decision not to do for Luke. Uh, for Luke not to do, <laughs> out of some higher virtue, maybe. But whatever reason, Ray and Ren are able to transfer physical gestures and real matter across to each other, at least a little bit. Which leaves some question, is this an inherent force power for anyone powerful enough? Or can it be that can transport their own life force beyond the physical realm uh, in which they inhabit? Or is this kind of life manipulation practice more likely originating from the dark side, from Plagueis and his successor Palpatine? Further note, let me just connect a few plot dots that are in front of us here while picking up on the speculative matter of the plot's production. However these plot points make you feel in triggering various external contexts of what fans and or sceptics argue, this following canon version of events is fairly clear when presented in the 1-9 to chronological order. And they are... And they are... Palpatine made Anakin Skywalker and the Skywalker's bloodline. Palpatine, upon his defeat in uh, by his apprentice in episode 6, exercised a force power to ultimate reincarnation, cheating of death, the likes of which he once alluded to when first indoctrinating an anxious Anakin to the dark side. Palpatine is defeated in the final chapter by Ren and Rey combined, one of whom carrying the legacy of of the Skywalker power that Palpatine is responsible for creating, the other of which his own estranged granddaughter. Therefore, Palpatine's living creations were in the end his own undoing, one the consequence of his unceasing hunger for power and immortality, the other... Ray, an involuntary product of his own creation, a natural, organic consequence of his actions, one that slipped under the radar and grew up as a nobody from nowhere. I find this lays out a satisfying twist of irony and fate, and although we may have had subverted expectations from Ray's uh, nobody background, originally stated in episode 6, I think there's an equally resonant moral, resonant moral point around identity and past that develops, through constantly, develops constantly through these final three chapters. I've already heard it regarded as the thrust being about choices, Crucially, that one's past, be it bad, good, or seemingly insignificant, doesn't have to define us in the ways we often think. 
the nature of one's destiny is fundamentally down to following love and compassion over fear and hate. This alone has been echoed a lot in the Jedi's rhetoric, but also expanded upon progressively more through these nine episodes by the choices we make in the wake of great failures or humilities. Luke here at episode nine, acknowledging as a force ghost that he was wrong, just as Obi-Wan confessed in ghost form in episode six, when he admitted he thought he could teach Anakin. Again, we hear the message, I was wrong. Some other poignant beats in this final instalment was the mirroring of Han and Ben Solo's standoff from episode 6, which follows closely after an equally poignant moment Leia uses her powers to reach out to her son in sacrifice of her own life. Doing this while grasping Han's medal she gave Han in episode 4, there is a poetry I find in this whole section where both Ben's parents reach out to him beyond the cracking Ren demeanour he'd been beneath, echoed also with the literal cracks in his helmet. And this process was bridged when he's humbled by Ray's compassion to save his life despite everything, a willingness to forgive that forces him to reflect inward and recall that vision of his father. The same standoff as in episode 7, with the same telling signs of inner conflict in Wren or Ben's face. Aside from anything else, I have to applaud the way that the previous section was handled in Carrie Fisher's absence, and the acting from Ford and Wren's... Uh, what's his name? The guy who plays Wren. <laughs> Those two. It was great. This scene settles the destiny of Ben's arc with a silent I love you. Throwback to episode 5, Empire Strikes Back, sitting perfectly within the family context. If that alone doesn't stir something in you by this point in the saga, you may be reading the wrong ramble. Ben's vision of Han epitomises for me the reoccurring matter of choice and destiny, and that your past needn't hold you back. Han's background as a once nobody, someone who found stoicism and virtue through his own unlikely journey, fell in love, and unlike the force-wielding power that Ben's mother had passed down the Skywalkers, Han is a mere mortal, but a loving father, one who made mistakes, as all heroes must, and one who in death could still bring out the humanity in Ben after everything that had happened. Our past is never fully insignificant in how it got us to where we are, but this Skywalker saga, by its very name, though falling heavily upon a bloodline legacy, we learn the power within that bloodline was manufactured for cruel intentions. It is the humanity and humility within those who carry the Skywalker name and every other name who it crosses paths with to fight the good fight that makes heroes and victors and brings balance to this all-powerful force that flows through everything and binds the world together. We see many of our main characters forced to reflect on their past and their choices or legacy. Finn, indeed, learns of his own legacy from his acts in Episode 7, which he'd been unaware of. Poe is faced with echoes of his past, and C-3PO's uncharacteristic 
uncharacteristic stoicism, accepting his duty to let go, erase his past in the form of all his memories that identify him. With Ben and Ray's joined forces at the end, closing the final lid on Palpatine's legacy of greed, fear and corruption, Ray takes the pilgrimage to Tantooine to bury the sabres. This rise of Skywalker, the title refers to, is surely symbolic of the rise of good over evil and all the other similar sentiments I've made. The force powers that were passed down the Skywalker bloodline from Anakin were already manufactured, as was Anakin, but it's the humanity and humility that existed in these chosen people, the same emotions shared with all the living beings that won out. These powers and their legacies were all a consequence of one man's greed, Darth Sidious's greed. Skywalker became a symbol for hope, one that reinforced one that was reinforced by Luke's actions in episode 8. Skywalker was clearly always more than a bloodline. The name only rose to prominence because of the intervention of someone else and their powers. Prior to, Skywalker was a nobody, like everyone else, and nobody is really a nobody. A past may serve us well or not, but we get to choose what contributes to a higher purpose, or whatever you want to call it. To this end, it feels befitting to me that Ray closes the Skywalker saga, proudly identifying as a Skywalker, because it's not about blood. It's about true friends and family. It's about shared past, shared humility, and shared success. Ray is a powerful being. With powers comes great responsibility, but it's not the power that makes her journey's arc. It is her choice as to what kind of legacy she wants to honour, and what kind she wants to leave. That is a humble and human endeavour that relates to all the best of humanity. It's not reinventing the wheel. It's classic themes in a classic sort of story, but having run through this all chronologically now, I feel obliged to stress in anticipation of the critics that this whole saga works, and I think it works pretty damn well. Look past the perceived politics and online discourse that we've already well known revels in cynicism and tribalistic approval signalling, and I think you have a classic tale, told and assembled in a wholly unique, sometimes curious, and always elaborate and innovative way. Redressing some withstanding sequel trilogy matters. Now to dive into some more of the recent rhetoric surrounding the sequel trilogy that I want to attempt to debunk. Let the past go. Some diehard fans may wince at this sentiment from episode 8, destroying everything they feel is Star Wars. Likewise, some film critics might get aroused by the thought of something they feel is more original. Again, tiresome tribalistic reductivism, in my humble opinion. The past can matter, your loved ones, those who installed your skills, abilities and virtues, but the bad things in the past, they don't have to define you. There are clearly certain common qualities in every Star Wars film that could be regarded as making them feel more like Star Wars, rather than reeling off a potential universal template we can all agree on. We merely need acknowledge that this is true. Equally, that our expectations can be subverted. Funnily enough, it's not all about one or the other, it's about 
balance. Ray's parents were nobody, Palpatine's alive, and Ray's grandfather reveal, stitched on to settle fandom, question mark. Maybe, maybe not, don't care. It wouldn't be the first time a now-beloved Star Wars film backtracks in a notable way. Remember Obi-Wan's From a Certain Point of View? This, of course, after telling Luke Vader murdered his father. I don't know about you, but objectively that can be a bit hard to defend. Curiously enough, people are willing to forgive and overlook that backtracking, but perhaps in their jaded adult ways less willing to see the best in the sequels than their childhood selves might. But you don't have to be a child to take an optimistic perception. Uh, Kevin Smith has left a good impression on me recently for his own personal policy on flagging up the best in things, commenting that he has dislikes just as the rest of us, but he only chooses to talk about the good stuff. That's the sound ethos to good living in general, but as he's a man who enjoyed the sequel trilogy for the most part, as much as I did, it feels extra poignant to me. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for a bit of fun fam, uh, film critiquing and playful arguments, but I'll. But as I elaborate, I do find the common criticisms of The Last Jedi and of Rise of Skywalker seem to be just as easily applied to the original trilogy, that everyone still finds the goodwill and optimism to regard fondly. Incidentally, I don't think the Palpatine reveal was stitched on. Not half because of what recently came to light when it was recently discovered Ray's first lines in The Force Awakens in that alien language, when spelt phonetically, is an anagram of I am a Palpatine, which would be a classic sort of device for a director like Abrams uh, to, to leave in there, and it could just be a coincidence. But it would have to be the most remarkable coincidence in the whole history of screenwriting. Backtracking in general. The suggestion of backtracking conveniently overlooks the plethora of examples where this film trilogy actually aligns up and still maintains those essential motifs and mirroring plot rhythms and rhymes evident in the whole saga. There are devices introduced in episode 8 that are essential drivers in in number 9. Not to say it's not going to be a tonal shift somewhat. They're different directors after all, but that's fine surely. I said before 8 first came out that I thought doing it JJ, Ryan and JJ in that order would be a smart move. If you're going to give a tonal shift to a trilogy, do it in the middle act. It gives a sense of symmetry. I see no more tonal shift than between Empire and Jedi, also different writers and directors. We see a similar tonal shift in the original trilogy, and many critics look back on Empire as the standout instalment of them all. So perhaps that's apt that critics may take the same favour in retrospect in the middle instalment of this trilogy. Any self-respecting fan, however, of the originals would love all three for their own merits, something that'll echo in my reflection of the sequels, nay, the whole saga. And a final point on backtracking. I completely reject this image of Johnson as a maverick rogue wanting to defy every expectation, at odds with Abrams' conservative traditionalism. Nah. Bollocks. They have their own visions, and indeed their own flaws. The Last Jedi is not my favourite, but enough works for me to go with it. I think both directors are capable of suspending their own egos to contribute to something meaningful to the grand plan. 
why is Luke not acting like Luke in episode 8? He has an arc like many people. He didn't suddenly admit the error in his ways in episode 9 to pander to fans who were angry at his depiction in 8. Luke already saw the error in his ways and came around at the end of episode 8, in quite a significant way in fact if you might recall. Luke's depiction and progression seemed to bother people in both camps. Each camp was spinning it from their own problematic compulsions, but again it seems, though there were haters of Johnson and Abrams, the entire sequel trilogy could give them all a free blowjob and they'd complain that there was too much rivalry involved. Star Wars has become too PC. No, it hasn't. There are many views to take on the plot, but general PC-ness is an entirely unrelated matter. People who hate on The Last Jedi are all right-wing incels. No, they're not. This assumption is also clouding a sensible debate over the ninth instalment, thinking Disney was pandering to that sort of angry backlash. There are credible and reasonable criticisms of The Last Jedi. Hell, there are for many, or any, Star Wars film. I enjoy a bit of friendly debate over those, but I feel obliged to tip the balance a little further into the realm of positivity for this essay. The kind of people who wish to disown Star Wars because of political differences, whether they believe Star Wars pandered to PC culture or to toxic fans, or both. I would hope said folk just get on with it and jump ship rather than plastering YouTube essays about how much they think it sucks. But one can only hope. Reduction of Rose Tico part. I can recognise this one, as it did feel a bit suspiciously lacking. However, it seems to have come from various sources on the inside that there was a cut of episode 9, with a lot more of her in it. Also rumours the cut that we got to see was not the one Abrams had intended. I'm inclined to believe this, but I guess it's one of those things that may be confirmed a long time from now. Star Wars should have been more like Marvel. No, Marvel should be like Marvel because they're not the same thing. Force Awakens had too much fan service. What, you mean like Marvel, which is unapologetically off its tits on fan service, but fans didn't complain. It's... It's almost as if they enjoyed it, and it didn't compromise the quality of storytelling at all. Force Awakens serves me magnificently as a fan and introduced interesting new characters at the same time. It fully went above and beyond being the film it always needed to be. Of course, civilised arguments can be made over why you believe one thing works better than another, but drawing an arbitrary comparison to Marvel's film chronology is reductive and begs specific observations that have some objective substance. The matter of generations... We saw this unfold with the prequels, maybe seeing a lot of vocal adults angry at the film marketing towards kids, only for those kids to grow up and chime in on the debate more favourably for the prequels. I certainly see them more fondly being on the cusp of puberty when Phantom Menace was released. I can't look past all the flaws, but I'm more cheerfully accepting of them. Whether a trilogy that spirals off trade embargoes 
or the more recent trilogy that holds 12A certificates are as explicitly for kids as some might make it. It is a whole other debate, but like many Pixar films show us, a good film is a good film is a good film, for young and old alike. Children tend to have that more glasses-half-full inclination, so roll on all the, actually, the sequel trilogy was great discourse that fires off in about ten-ish years' time. To reiterate the tonal shift, I can see why The Last Jedi was favoured by some and not so much by others, all PC matters aside. The more I think about it, the harder it would be for myself to pick one. It's all fan, bruv. We're almost there, folks. Closing reflections. There are another 12 essays to be made from Star Wars, not to mention the aesthetics and the relevance to my own creative practice therein. But on reflection, I do think there is a lot of objective merit in watching these films in the order which they were made. But it's interesting to imagine them from the angle that I now do. Of course, the way I perceive the progression of plot points and their merit is interchangeable to the original approach, having seen the original trilogy first as a child. Some things look better with more background legacy. Some points work better with more background mystery. To me, it this just offers another fun way to of enjoying and playfully arguing or riffing on the apparent glitches. (laughs) A note about John Williams. This is a man that cannot warrant enough recognition in Star Wars, as well as a great many other films. I stress this point about all the craft and talent that blends into Star Wars, but Williams maintains the flow and that sense of DNA through Star Wars, especially as we... We'll now look back on the Skywalker saga. There is no more powerful force of continuity. There are a few masters who will have well earned their reputation in this franchise, like Phil Tippett and Ralph McQuarrie. One wonders if you throw these three people together alone and half a decent script to work with, you would be guaranteed something extraordinary. Notice various repetitive motifs like the loss of hands, this rhythmical progression Lucas had referred to in making the prequels that is just as evident in my opinion in the sequel trilogy, and in fitting for a story for a Skywalker saga where there are two key family lines at play, which are probably in essence the same family line, what with Anakin's creation. Ray's parents were nobodies, and so was Anakin's mother. There's no backtracking here. All the saga's heroes and villains come from humble beginnings. Even though there is a bloodline that travels throughout the story, the force powers carried through the Skywalker family are not genetic. They're constructed deliberately by Sith, by people who were obsessed with power and the hubris of those operating on both sides of the force backfires for everyone. While the journey searches for balance and peace, both Sith and Jedi regard their way of doing things as the only path to peace in the galaxy. But ultimately it takes the pathos and humility of individuals like Obi-Wan, Luke, 
Leia, Solo, Ray, Finn and Ben Solo amongst others to evidently do heroic things. Palpatine set all these wheels in motion. Indeed, he was banking on the hubris and flawed status quo of those who stood in the way of his unceasing greed. The irony then of the heroism of those willing to embrace their humility and turn this unsolicited power he created against him. All the heroes I've listed here come close to following a more selfish and closed-off path chosen one or not. Han Solo, for instance, despite not having any blood-given force powers, it is simply Ben's memory of him, a memory of a certain idea that the image of his father then embodies, of love and pathos that falls on a crucial tipping point where Leia sacrifices her own life to reach out to her lost son. One key thing Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker have in common most people seem unwillingly to notice is that they both make a point that the power of Skywalker is a symbol because that heroism attributed to it has always come from humble origins and that heroic symbol of Skywalker can belong to anyone in their own journey of self-realisation. This saga is not one person's vision but it all draws from the same classic emotional beats that have always driven a hero's journey and indeed the nature of evil and good. It is the innovation integration, ingenuity and good humour of many previous nobodies who went into making this storytelling so striking and memorable. Even the cultural adaptation of Jedi as a recognised religion is humbling, given the amalgamation of pre-existing spiritual philosophy that went into the Force and Yoda's words of virtue. The messages are nothing new, the story is nothing new, but it elevates so many of those poignant things. Are there not flaws? Yes, but like the stormtrooper bashing his head way back in 1977, I feel the lasting strength of the Star Wars fan base is a willingness to forgive the blemishes with a good, with a bit of good humour, and some of that force-sensitive pathos the whole story clearly promotes. Negotiating familiarity with originality, as stated before, the key story in the Skywalker saga isn't especially original. It doesn't have to be. There is just enough twists and turns to keep the pace, no more, no less, and that's good. In conclusion, other opinions are available. But I'm certain Star Wars is really quite good. That's my very certain point of view. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.